2: And on today's show, we're once again talking equity compensation. But more specifically, we're talking about the impact of taxes on your equity awards and how pre-planning your exercise strategy in advance can help you to avoid some really big tax surprises in the future. As you've heard me mention on previous episodes in this series on equity comp, it is my belief that while HR staff are good at providing planned participants some base level education around their equity comp, when asked for personal advice and guidance regarding things like when to exercise or sell, and the specific tax consequences of each decision, the HR team is not well equipped. And in most cases, they're actually precluded by company policy from providing employees with such advice. Since a plan participant's equity compensation generally represents a major portion of their overall net worth, they're essentially left on their own to solve some of the most complex financial puzzles they'll ever face. Questions like when to exercise and sell, how to maximize those shares value, and how to reduce risk all generate complex tax consequences which need to be evaluated prior to execution. Thus, I decided that it would be a good idea to dedicate an entire episode in this series to discussing those very tax consequences. And since I myself am by no means an expert on the tax code, I decided to call up someone who I know who is and have a discussion. Megan Gorman is the founder and managing partner of Checkers Financial, a woman-owned high-net-worth tax planning practice based in San Francisco. Megan's a tax attorney by training and received her JD from Rutgers School of Law. She's a senior contributor at Forbes and has also been quoted several times by national publications such as The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, CNBC, and U.S. News, to name a few. Megan is super passionate when it comes to the world of taxes and stock options, and so I thought she would be a great person to bring on and have a conversation about both of those things, two of my favorite subjects as well. So with that brief introduction, welcome Megan Gorman to the Tech Money Podcast.
3: Malcolm, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
2: Yeah, well, I appreciate you uh coming on and joining us and I breezed through your resume pretty quickly in my intro there. What did I miss?
3: I think the two things I would just add is I've been working with executives for over 20 years, so I've seen comp go through different versions. And the other thing is I'm a board member at the National Endowment for Financial Education. So I'm mm. a really big advocate for financial literacy. And I think this is a key thing to point out because When you get complex compensation, you have to embrace financial literacy. You have Mm. to know how to manage this type of compensation.
2: So to that end, actually, the reason that you and I met in the first place is that I attended a workshop on stock options a while back, and you were one of the presenters, and you were so, 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 so passionate during your presentation. And I was like, if I could just someday bring myself to be even 50% as excited about anything As that lady is talking about taxes, I'll be doing something with my life. And so why is this the thing that you're so passionate about? Why are taxes and stock options specifically so exciting to you?
3: Yeah. I mean, so first of all, I'm a girl from a small town. So the idea of building wealth is exciting, right? And if you Mm -hmm. think about it, if you're sitting there and you get a compensation package that gives you stock options or restricted stock or, or any other unique compensation, you're like the chosen one in the chosen few to really, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. truly embrace the American dream. And for me, taxes, you know, a lot of people want to stick their head in the sand with taxes, but taxes to me are puzzles, right? <laughs> How do you get to an outcome that will allow you to sleep at night? I mean, to be brutally frank, I hate taxes. I <laughs> feel completely hammered by them from both a federal and California state perspective. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. I also sleep at night because I know that I have done everything I possibly can to mitigate my tax bill. And I have made proactive choices to help my bottom line. And that's where I think for a lot of people, they've got to get to that point to feel satisfied with – I mean, you're never happy, but you got to feel satisfied that you did everything possible to get to the right place tax-wise.
2: Well, so – One other thing I heard you mention in there, you mentioned briefly that the last 20 years you had experiences working with like super high net worth C-suite level folks. And I want to actually be a little more specific about that. So one thing Mm -hmm. that I think is unique about your experience is that you previously worked at ACO, which for those who are listening who are not familiar, they provide financial and tax advice typically to your skip managers, skip manager, right? I.E. the top Mm -hmm. I don't know, 15, 25 people in an organization the size of Google, right? And to that end, there's a lot of financial challenges, if you can even call them that, that a person at the officer level or the C-suite, as it's called, will have that are a bit unique to that level of the organization, right? But then there's also the challenges that are not so rare and unique and fall into the domain of, say, I don't know, everybody above the middle manager or at the director level at least, right? For example, Can you say a bit about some of the differences and similarities between those two groups that you've observed?
3: Yeah, I mean, the biggest difference in working with people who are in the top, you know, five roles of the company is my job in that instance is to protect them. Right. Mm -hmm. And protect them from doing something that would end up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And that that is sort of the litmus test for that group yeah. right because even if they have an innocent reason for exercising options or selling stock right and maybe they're and they be in an open window period mm-hmm. optically it might not make sense it might not make sense to the street or it might not make sense internally if, and if it's not the CEO but to their CEO that they're mm-hmm, selling mm-hmm. and so that's where they have to be very very careful and so that group, Is very good at managing the stress of holding a single stock position. Mm -hmm. And so this is going to be important here because whoever you are in the company, if you're getting stock, you're going to get hammered with advice from outside advisors that Mm -hmm. you need to mitigate your risk and you need to diversify. Sell, sell, sell is what you're going to get constantly hung in your ear, said in your ear, right? Mm -hmm. But the challenge you have is great wealth is not created by diversification. Great wealth is preserved at a reasonable rate of return by diversification. But great wealth is having to hold a single stock position or owning a business or something where there's a lot of concentration of volatility, managing that volatility till it's the right moment to diversify away. So that, to me, is the common experience for all people who hold equity at companies. Mm -hmm. The only difference, as I said, really to me is protecting those who are in sort of the public spotlight.
2: Fair enough. Yeah. I find it very interesting that at that level, there are all these high class problems, I'll call them, that Mm -hmm. you don't even know exist until you are thrust into that Mm -hmm. point. And then it's like, oh my God, like, why is this my problem? Right? Like I'm busy Mm -hmm. running the organization and now I have to worry about like the optics of me choosing to sell to use the money to buy another residence, for example, right?
3: Or send your kid to college, right? (laughs) Right,
2: right. All those different things that normally you would want to exercise those shares to do. It's like now you have a a totally different level of scrutiny that comes along with it. But anyway, I will digress. But to go ahead and sort of jump into the deep end, if you don't mind, Mm -hmm. since it's rare that I get a chance to chat with a tax attorney who knows how to speak plain English. I want to make sure that I squeeze as much juice as I can out of this episode.
3: Okay, so, let's do it.
2: Let's go. <laughs> so to get us started, you know, one of the things that I'm most curious about is the plan participant side of the equity comp equation. And what I mean by that is, you know, I often talk to people and I see where they're letting the tax tail wag the entire dog, as we say, right? Any advice you, you sort of alluded to it, your stance on taxes and paying taxes, but any advice on how to get people to zoom out a little bit and just see the entire picture and not just focus on tax avoidance as the only decision maker?
3: Yeah. And it's tough, right? So I think a couple things. When you get to a company and they give you equity compensation, this is not a decision to be focused on in a silo. As I said, Mm -hmm. you're sort of the chosen few, right? You've got this moment to maximize. You've got the golden ticket and Willy Wonka standing there, right? (laughs) But you've got to think about it big picture. So the first thing I will tell you is when you think about it big picture, you've got to balance the psychological and the administrative. So let's talk about the psychological really quick, and that is what are your goals with the stock? Because Malcolm, if you got a stock option award and I got a stock option award, I am willing to bet money you and I have very different goals ultimately. Now some Mm -hmm. of them might overlap. We both might want to own a second home. We both want to save for retirement, but The actual nuts and bolts of that could be very different. I might want to retire by the time I'm 55. And you might be like, look, I want to work forever. I love working. And by the way, there are a lot of people like that. So the psychology of it is, okay, you've been given this golden ticket. What's the ultimate goal? How do you visualize it? And it's really about finding someone you can talk to about this, whether it's Hmm. an attorney, whether it's your CPA, whether it's your financial advisor. And really say, look, I've gotten this stock option award. I'm probably going to keep getting awards as long as I work there. My goal is to maximize it because I want to retire at age 55. I want to have $5 million in assets. I want to own my house outright. And I want my kids to go to school and not take on any student loan debt. Right? Yep. That's sort of the American dream today. That's it. Right. So that part of getting that out there and visualizing is important. And I will say to any financial advisor who's listening, This is something that should be in the investment policy statement. Write Hmm. this down because you are, quote unquote, the dream maker in this. You Mm -hmm. are going to help the employee get to that goal. And that comes now to administration, right? So I mentioned a financial advisor, and I think that's important to have. But the person who is most important to have on your team is a really good tax advisor, and yeah. there are some brilliant tax minds out there. I am constantly interacting with them because of my work at Forbes, and, and there's a community of us on tax Twitter. But the thing is, the biggest mistake I see is that people don't put value on tax planning. Mm-hmm. Or when they do put value on it, they do it too late. They do it when they've had the ISOs for four years and the company's about to IPO. Yeah, Tax planning has to start the moment you get your award. And so when you go to meet a tax professional, work with you, to partner with you on this, what you're going to be asking them to do is run analysis. So your threshold question is, are you a proactive tax advisor? And tell me how. And so the things I look for is someone who's going to be running tax projections or not just in the current year, but multi-year ones. Because as many of you know, listening, when you own stock options, it's a multi-year decision on how you exercise them. -hmm. The other thing is, you want to understand what other strategies or how do they think about these things, right? Are they going to help you look at this where you exercise a non qualified stock option and maybe you also fund a DAF in that year, a donor advised fund in that year, because your adjusted gross income is quite high and you're trying to reduce your tax bill? So, you really want someone who's going to be proactive and calling you on this and partnering with you. And so, I will tell you interview lots of tax professionals, interview two or three, and don't be embarrassed if you don't know a lot about tax, because that's why you're hiring the professional. Trust me, I'm a tax geek. We love to geek out. So don't worry. We'll fill the room with the conversation of what you should be thinking about.
2: Yeah. I Not to belabor the point too much, but I did an episode well early into launching this podcast around the idea, the notion. There comes a point in A lot of working professionals lives high earning working professionals lives where you hit this this spot where you no longer you can't afford to be doing your taxes yourself anymore or you can't afford the mistakes of doing your taxes anymore yourself anymore and i think what you're talking about kind of leads into that where i have a personal issue with people's wanting to save by any means necessary At the expense of some larger four and five figure mistakes in some cases right you're talking about people who make three four five hundred thousand dollars one and a half two million dollars in some cases in in annual income and wanting to spend 50 bucks to file your taxes where one mistake could cost you fifteen thousand dollars just doesn't add up to me right And I think where you're going sort of lends itself to that. It's like if you want the quality tax advisor who's going to be calling you and saying, hey, this is the time for you to exercise. You just had another grant come up. You know, I know it's February and I've got it logged in my system that every February you get another tranche of shares. Let's talk about the strategy. If you want that person and that caliber of planning and advice, it's going to cost a little something. And so Again, I won't beat the dead horse because I already dedicated an entire episode to that, but you got me a little fired up with your sermon. There,
0: so just, <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
2: Exactly. I, I so we say, be the,
3: hero, be the hero or the heroine of your own journey. And that there requires active engagement.
2: Yeah. Well, so one of the more common rules, one of the more common pieces of advice I come across in this space is that option holders should wait as long as possible to exercise, right? And this advice mm-hmm. is primarily motivated, once again, by tax avoidance. Which side do you come down on that?
3: Oh, see, it's so funny that you say that because I would tell you that the primary motivator in that is intrinsic value, right? That Mm, the mm. option will likely be valued more at the end of the term than at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very, very client specific, right? So my clients, for better or for worse, are typically always in the top bracket. Mm -hmm. So I will tell you right now, and I've gone through this before when we've had tax changes, is in tax, right, you're always thinking about timing issues. Time is the key element in tax you have to factor in. So as you sit here today and you have the Biden administration talking about raising rates and so on, the question Mm -hmm. that you should be having or the discussion you should be having with your tax professional is, if I exercise today, what would my tax bill be versus if I exercised it tomorrow? And it's hard because you have to make assumptions. You have to sort of call the ball on stuff. Where would tax rates go? Are you going to get your SALT deduction back? I say that because I'm sitting in California. And even if tax rates went up next year, but I got the SALT deduction back, net, I might end up ahead. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to be thinking about this in terms of the timing issues involved with tax. But ultimately, it comes down to the power of the underlying stock. So if sure. you own the, the option and you're four years into it and you've got a spread of $300 on the option, take the money and run, yeah. right? Or yeah. mitigate part of it. Don't be afraid to exercise. And I want to say that because I do find, and this is something I've talked to HR departments about, is sort of the typical employee, at particularly tech companies, they mm-hmm. often get hesitant about being strategic about their equity or they get a little paralyzed by it. And so they don't do the right things in the right moment. Mm. And so look, this is wealth is going to happen if you proactively engage with it. So I don't mean to give you sort of a roundabout answer, but I think it's the balance of general school of thought is the back part of the term is the better time to exercise the option. But at the same time, work with running analysis on what different tax rates will do on you exercising. And the last thing I'll say on that is, Yep. I always tell clients, if you exercise the money, we're not going to go bury it under the mattress, right? We're not <laughs> going to bury it in the backyard. You're going to put it in a portfolio that's going to have a reasonable rate of return, probably yeah. in the 5 to 6% range. So it will still grow. It might just not grow at such a high volatility.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I can't say it any better, so I won't. But in, uh, <laughs> as you were talking, another one of the things I was thinking about, another more popular rule of thumb for folks with RSUs this time instead of ISOs is to sell immediately. That's always the advice that folks are given peer to peer or what have you. And once again, this one's almost completely a tax thing, right? If you sell immediately, you won't have capital gains taxes to contend with. Where do you come down here? I have my assumptions, but (laughs) where's (laughs) Yeah, When, When it
3: comes to an RSU, I could care less as much about the capital gains taxes. I care more about the ordinary income tax. Sure. So as we all know, when an RSU vests, right, you're granted an RSU, it's time-based. So when you hit the vesting date, when that vests, that income appears in box one of your W-2, that is Mm -hmm. the painful tax hit, right? Mm -hmm. So the typical traditional rule of thumb is to sell immediately because then from a capital gains perspective, it's a wash. Mm -hmm. I think it comes down to the company. I really truly do. And I think it comes down to the risk tolerance, your ability to leverage and your goals. So I have clients that get a mix of both RSUs and stock options. And we yeah. often decide, look, if it's an RSU, we're going to get it, sell it, and diversify it. With the options, we're going to wait for those key wealth building moments. So yeah. I think it comes down to the person and the stock. And the good news is we can all historically look back on a stock and see how it's done. And you sure. have to be looking at your, the stock that you're in over the 1, 5, 10, as far back as you can go. Because if it's a company that, I mean, and there are companies out there like this, you know, we're so jaded in California because of the tech world. But there are a lot of traditional companies where the stock doesn't move that much. Yeah. So staying in it might not be worth the while. But then there are other companies that are, have a lot more volatility, a lot more upside. And if you're willing to have paid the ordinary income tax and then lost money on it, you might be willing to take that risk. Again, this is all psychological. It comes down to your goals. And that's why I think having the right tax person and financial advisor is going to be key. You know, why I push more on the tax uh, the tax professional is the money's going to go to the financial advisor anyway. The mm-hmm. tax professional to some degree has no skin in the game, right? They're sort of objective and conflict-free if you sell or not. So I do like to to run things by a tax professional in these instances.
2: I would add to that and even sort of push back on that one caveat, which is that mm-hmm. if the advisor is working with the client on a fee-for-service basis, yes, then yes. you're sort of agnostic. Whether the client exercises, sells the RSUs, what have you, or not, the advice is still the advice, right? Because the Correct. client's not paying just based on a percentage of assets under management or assets under custody or whatever, more colorful ways I've heard people describe it recently. <laughs>
3: Malcolm, I think you're bringing up a great point because I think going back to like setting up your team, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure you've done shows on this, it's a little bit of asking about the model right, and how it works and how it operates. Because I think you bring up a great point, which is there are a lot of financial advisors out there. And and look, I manage money. Where they're advocating for the client, where they're on the fiduciary standard, where it doesn't matter to them if the client sells or not, they just want to get the client in the right position. And finding those advisors is really key.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think it's a little bit of a task on the front end from the client's perspective, having to ask those uncomfortable questions that people often don't. And then they find out a year or two later that it's not the best fit, especially to your point you were making earlier where folks sort of ready, fire, aim, right? An IPO was Mm -hmm. announced and now I suddenly need to go out and overnight decide who I'm going to trust my life changing wealth to. It's sort of a too little, too late scenario in a lot of cases or not too little, too late, right? Money is money and you've come into millions of dollars, your life is going to be okay. But as far as efficiency is concerned and you having a chance to sort of do what you want to do over time, it really makes sense to sort of have those conversations and interview that team and assemble that team well enough in advance that you actually feel comfortable and confident in the the advice that you're getting. You're getting conflict-free advice at that point, but I won't Again, go too far down that rabbit hole because as you said, we already did an episode on that one too. So keep me on track.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I will keep you on track. And the one other person I think you should think about, for those people who are going through an IPO, Mm -hmm. one of the people that you should also work with who can partner with your tax professional is an estate planning attorney. And I say this Mm -hmm. because there are techniques out there where if you own stock and companies go in public and you're going to go from being worth half a million dollars to 25 million and that stuff does happen, you then start to shift your goal because you want to keep the money, but you also have to start focusing on getting it out of your estate. And so there are things you can do in an IPO that will allow you to take advantage of that. So I know that's probably a topic for a different day, but as you build that team out with the financial advisor, the tax professional, don't forget your estate planning attorneys.
2: Fair enough. I know. I think that's key advice to also add in there. I think as we're talking about this and you and I are kind of batting this back and forth, I'm, I'm thinking like from the client's perspective, they often hear people like you and me say that they should create a plan and plan ahead and look toward the future and start early and all that good stuff, almost at nauseum, I would bet. Right. But from a tax planning perspective, it just really is more helpful to your and even from a financial planning perspective perspective. It's more helpful to your advisors to have as much time to plan as possible, right? The knee-jerk reaction of, I got X amount of time to get this done, and I need you to come up with a solution tomorrow morning. You'll get a solution tomorrow morning, but it won't necessarily be the outcome that you would have wanted had you actually given the heads up six months in advance or a year in advance and started working through these things. So it's just very helpful from this end to turn around the best work product possible with the longest time horizon possible.
3: Yeah, and but, I'll say uh, one thing about tax professionals. Sure. We're all pretty pragmatic, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it isn't, don't be surprised if the advice you get is, okay, so you pay the tax. It is what it is. <laughs> and I think yeah. that's, you know, I remember the first time a tax, prof- like when I was early in my career, I was only been working for like six months. and It was a huge tax bill. And, and I remember my boss who was a CPA was like, look, it is what it is. Yeah. They made money. Yeah. And I think there's a pragmatism about that, right? Because there isn't, you can't get taxes to completely disappear usually. Now, there are ways to mitigate taxes. And I think in the equity comp world, everybody focuses on ISOs, right? As a good way of mitigating tax. And it could be a good way of mitigating tax for you. You know, from California, it might be an 18% tax savings if everything Mm -hmm. works out. But there's a risk you take on with some of that. So it's, I think with tax professionals, we have a pragmatism because we've seen a lot of things happen. And ultimately, if you've made money and you're paying tax, look, you're winning. I mean, that's not a bad thing.
2: So to get a little more specific or a little more granular here, I know you've worked with clients in the past to help them establish 10 b 51 trading programs, right? And specifically to help them stay out of hot water and Keep them from running afoul of any insider trading rules and restrictions, as you alluded to at the top of this. Right. But also, in some cases, we've used them for clients just purely from a psychological standpoint to help them set up a preplanned selling strategy to get over the mental hurdle of selling. Right. We kind of talked about that a little bit earlier in this podcast, and I imagine this may have some tax advantages as well. Is this something you recommend to clients often?
3: So 10 b five ones are incredibly popular and I do them very frequently with clients. Now a couple things, because we talked about the beginning of the podcast. Typically the top two or three executives at a company, we don't have them sell at all usually Mm -hmm. while they're working. Optically it doesn't look great. I have had in the past, I remember once I had a this is now over a decade ago, I had a very senior executive have a training plan in place and there was an article about it in the Wall Street Journal. And it was mm-hmm. funny because the Wall Street Journal got all the facts wrong, all the numbers wrong. But it's just too much scrutiny, even with the 10B51 plans. And we all need to be aware that the new head of the SEC is not a fan of 10B51 plans. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I suspect we are going to see greater scrutiny over time. But for the average executive, right, for the trying to figure out how to sell, right, 10 b 51 plans are great. Now, it is merely an affirmative defense against insider trading. So these plans that you put in place, which is a selling plan, typically last 9 to 12 months, and you put it in place when it's in an open window, and then there's a cooling off period, whether it's 30, 60, or 90 days. And then the plan goes into being. And so what I often challenge my clients is say, look, if we're not dealing with liquidity issues, which is a different story, but if we're just trying to diversify away at prices that make them happy we talk about, okay, let's do it from an elevator perspective, right? Let's just not sell on the first of the month every month. That's sort of boring and the stock might move around. Let's shoot for the stars. Let's try here. And so what we look at is what is the minimum they want to sell out, right? Is it, let's say, and it's a stock and the minimum they want to sell it is $30 a share. So we might say, okay, we're going to sell X number of shares at 30, but if the stock is at 32, we'll sell X number more. And at 34, sure. X number more. And we keep having it go up with this idea that if the stock opens on $50 a share on the first day of the plan, boom, plan sells and you're out, mm-hmm. right? Because you've got your dream price. So I like these plans because it allows clients to dream, to push for prices that they really, really want. And I will tell you from a satisfaction Monday morning quarterbacking perspective yeah. People like doing the plans. There is a feeling of strategy that they did the right thing. And it helps with the psychological aspects of this. You will always feel that you sold too low because the stock will keep moving, right? And that's okay. But you want to feel that you did the right decisions. The 10B5-1 plan, because it requires you to come up with the plan, to work with the plan administrator, to work with your legal counsel office, and it goes through a couple of rounds, It makes you think through things. And to some degree, it also can allow you to focus on it from a tax perspective, because you might say, look, I don't want to, if this stock hits $50 a share before the end of the year, I want it to sell. But I might make parts of my plan work that if it doesn't hit these sky high prices, it doesn't sell at other prices until the next tax year. So you can sort of manipulate it that way to work with your tax planning but really, the goal of these plans is to get out of the stock. And if you yeah. get out at an awesome price, that's what you want to do. That's the goal of this. This is the champagne problem you want to have.
2: So it's really funny as I'm listening to you describe the escalator mm-hmm. plan. It's You described it far better than I probably have ever done it. But it's also because it's an idea that you educated me on and then I stole from you. So if I have a, a couple of clients who are listening to this and thinking like, oh, that sounds familiar. Well, this is the source of the idea. But I really oh, like fine. it because yeah, <laughs> I really like the idea when I heard you first say it, because, again, it really does help to take the emotion out of it. But then also it helps to hold people accountable in a way where i think about so since the pandemic began i've been trapped in the house my wife and i have been watching a ton of hgtv right and so i'm thinking about it in the sense that like you have people that are so obsessed with their houses and what they think their house should be worth when they go to sell the realtor says okay so if i can get you four million dollars for this house you're gonna sell right and they say absolutely you get me four million dollars we're out of here and then they come back to them and they say okay i got you an offer for four million $50,000. Let's wrap this up. And they go, oh, well, wait a minute. We were thinking, you know, and they say, whoa, 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 whoa. You said if I could get you $4 million, which was more than your wildest dreams, this house would ever be worth, we were going to sell and move on. The time is here. We've got to do it. And that pre-planning of the escalator to say, look, if we get three X times the price today, We're at the number you need to retire, right? Say it's $4 million that you guys need to retire at 50 years old and have enough income to last you the rest of your lives doing what you like to do. Today's the day. What are we doing? I really like building that in in advance because it does, to your point, do a lot to help people go, okay, there was a plan. We executed the plan. I feel good about doing this thing because this is what we've been building toward this entire time versus just I, as an advisor, come in one day and say, huh. You got a lot of Microsoft stock here. You should go ahead and sell it so you can retire. That doesn't really come off the same. So anyway, I really like that escalator planning idea because it helps make my job easier in the future to help people remember, like, this is what we've been building toward all this time. It's not a, a thing to be afraid of. Today's our
3: day. Right. And it's FOMO mitigation, right? It helps fear of missing out that selling at that price. And so one of the things I think people need to think about is you have typically a window period to put a plan in place, right? Mm -hmm. And I would tell you, start your plan thinking before the window opens, Mm -hmm. right? Because for most people, it's a lot of juggling back and forth between legal and the, the plan administrator and your advisor and trying to calculate this. You should be thinking about it and sketching it out way before this and Mm -hmm. it makes a difference and the other part of this plan is when the plan sells have a plan for where the money goes Are you paying down debt are you funding the 529 are you adding to your brokerage account are you what should the money be going to because almost when the plan goes off you shouldn't have to do any thinking it should be all simultaneously how it plays out and you shouldn't be surprised by the taxes because you should have modeled that out before
2: yeah Again, can't say it any better than that, so I, won't, uh, so I won't bother to try. But one that I will kind of shift to a little bit, I'd like to get your take on, and this is strictly an opinion response. I wanna make sure that I make that clear for anybody who's listening to this. But okay. from a tax planning perspective, which would you say is the better way to receive equity comp between ISOs, NSOs, RSUs, and even PSUs?
3: I love it when you can get all of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I do have clients at companies where they offer all of them.
2: Really? I only ever see two at the most.
3: Yeah, no, I've got a couple of companies that have all of them. And uh, not as usually when they have all of them, they don't always have ISOs or they sure. come in and out on ISOs. I will tell you, there's certain things I like about each of them. So mm-hmm. RSUs, they're a sure thing, but you really don't get any upside it's predictable it's sort of boring Mm -hmm. right and i think rsus if i was a conservative person would be my favorite but i'm not that conservative i like performance awards because most companies offer modifiers on them so Mm -hmm. you know if the company did 200 times then it doubles right and they can be performance awards what i like is it's three years typically of the company performance factored in but i think when i look at this if i had to like cherry pick what i like the best. If I was getting equity comp, which I don't have, I would love to have a mix of non-qualified stock options and ISOs. And mm, the reason okay. why is this. I am very aware of the AMT, right? Now AMT has gotten easier over the past couple of years because sure. of the TCJA, the tax law passed in 2017. Sure. But one of the big things to keep in mind is if you exercise ISOs and that's all you exercise, you may trigger a phantom tax called the AMT. Now, this type of AMT tax, we technically call good AMT because you pay this additional tax, but it can be a credit in future years. But one of the best ways to fight off good AMT is if you have more income to soak it up. And so having a non-qualified stock option, even though it gives you ordinary income, it allows you to soak up any of the AMT issues that you might have had or it might allow you to use the AMT credit. So I like the two together and working with the two together. But, and that's my personal preference because I see the opportunities in both.
2: That's interesting. I would have looked at ISOs and stopped there. Frankly, I really like the idea of choose your own adventure. I really like mm-hmm. the idea that, you know, as long as I've been in the company three years, probably the best in window, let's say four at the longest to have my grant be here and own it. Beyond that, I can always stop working, take a break, earn less money on purpose so that I can exercise and go back to doing it. Like I'm thinking strictly through the lens of an entrepreneurial-minded person in the tech space, right? I can always mm-hmm. leave and, and take a hiatus for a year to help my tax situation and come back if I really want to.
3: But Malcolm, let me ask you a quick question on this. Sure, sure. If your wife was sitting here with us, mm-hmm. would she be so aggressive? I'm just asking. Maybe uh,
2: no, we're is. complete opposite. We are absolute <laughs> opposite. Yeah, no. So where you mentioned RSUs are for the conservative folks who like knowing what they have when it's all said and done, she would 100% tell you, give me the RSUs and I know what I'm going to have tomorrow. But on the flip side, I look at it and I say, because I know that, and to the point you made super early on in this about folks, almost everybody you're talking about are, is going to be in the top tax bracket in this perspective, and there's not a ton they can do about it to get themselves down below it. We're talking 600 and some odd thousand dollars puts you up there. There's not a ton you can do beyond it. And so you're going to have to pay that 37 on those RSUs. Whereas I have a little bit of flexibility, like I said, where I can jump in and jump out and kind of work on some other interesting things. If it means I get to save a few hundred thousand dollars in taxes to do it that way. So I would be a little more Strategic about it, but I'm also, like I said, a fan of the choose your own adventure uh, path of work life and all that kind of stuff versus the traditional put in your 40 years, get your gold bracelet and a pat on the back.
1: Yeah.
3: No, I get it. And that's a psychology of it. And that's why I think also when you have an equity comp, getting your spouse involved with it and -hmm. making sure Mm -hmm. everybody understands how it's going to work is going to be key. Yeah. Because again, to do ISOs, you do take on risk. And I think my. I don't want to say hesitancy, but I think I have seen ISOs work out really well, and I've seen ISOs not work out as well, where mm-hmm, people have mm-hmm. been burned on the AMT side. So I yeah, like to always start out and tell everybody all the bad things that'll happen, right? Let me <laughs> tell you, right? You might exercise, create this phantom tax, never get to use the credit, the stock fails, all of that fun stuff. But then I want to- Just send I do them like articles on the WeWork pros- and- Exactly. That's it. You just email
2: them bad stories from WeWork, Wall Street Journal articles on WeWork, and and they'll come around.
3: And I think the one thing I'll say about ISOs here, even though you didn't ask this question, one of the features I like about ISOs as a tax practitioner is there's an escape hatch with ISOs Mm -hmm. that tax professionals like. So let's say I have you exercise an ISO at the beginning of the year, and things go incredibly wrong at the company. And Mm -hmm. we realize we have this phantom tax and we're never going to have the income to soak it up. We can always disqualify it by the end of the year so that Mm -hmm. it's treated like a non-qualified transaction. So we have an escape hatch if things go awry, if you look at it from a timing standpoint. So again, as I talk about taxes is all about timing, acceleration or deferral. And so ISOs have a unique feature. I also like to use ISOs and disqualify them at times because I'm trying to do things like fund GRATs and do some unique estate planning before a company goes public. But again, Mm -hmm. buyer beware. You have to know what you're doing there to do some of these techniques because they can burn you. So champagne problems are good, but you got to be careful.
2: (laughs) How likely, though, do you think it is that we'll see any changes to the treatment of NSO specifically? I know there were some rumblings on this back in 2017, as you mentioned, but it didn't really get off the ground.
3: It's not clear. You know, right now, this is all, you know, I think a moving target on taxes. You know, we're taping this in August. And Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that has come out of the infrastructure bill is that I am, I don't want to say surprised, but I am glad the IRS is going to focus on this, is enforcement on crypto, right, Mm -hmm. as a way of generating revenue versus just going after the traditional increase in tax brackets. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure taxes are political footballs. And what Mm -hmm. I often tell people is what you hear in the news, maybe one to 5% of it will actually impact your tax return. There's a lot that they throw out there. In all honesty, the thing that concerns me the most for most Americans is if we lose the step up in basis at death. I think Mm -hmm. that that's a very powerful tool that we have in the tax toolbox and that if it goes away, yes, it would hurt the wealthy individuals, but more importantly, it would impact the middle class significantly.
2: Mm-hmm. I'll be glad if they just update the automatic withholding percentages like the, or the disparity in them, I should say, right? You have folks under a million in income being withheld at 22%, which makes no sense. Mm-hmm. And then those above a million in income flip to the 37%. At least I think I'm saying this right. But yeah. there's so much happening in Perfect. between those two income ranges, right, at the marginal mm-hmm tax level that I think the policy leaves out and and screws up, right? Like So just getting those automatic withholdings tiered better, I think would be super helpful to folks who do this kind of equity comp planning work. But from a personal perspective, you already tapped into it. I live in DC. I don't live in California. It's not as bad (laughs) here, but giving me back the salt tax would be a huge win for folks like us but oh my who god knows it'd be amazing it would land. be
3: amazing and it's so interesting this is a, a total tangent but i'm from new jersey and i live in mm-hmm. california and so whenever there's a tax change states like new jersey and maryland and new york they are like no taxation and they're like <laughs> fighting it tooth and nail and then yeah. i sit here in california and they're like oh yeah they're going to raise our taxes There's no fight. And I think it goes back to our history in this country, right? Mm -hmm, That mm -hmm. the 13 colonies fought that no taxation. And so a lot of this fight on the salt is actually coming from the East Coast and those states there and and congressmen and congresswomen from New York and New Jersey. So I hope they fight like crazy to get us back our salt deduction.
2: Yeah. Or at least get me a higher cap, right? And I can Mm -hmm. meet you in the middle, but either way. So on a similar note, I heard you talking about changes that are proposed, and so it made me think about this. Not so much the die and leave it to your kids, kids get the step up scenario, but a bridge sort of in that space. One of the things I'm always talking to clients about in this space who have a highly appreciated and highly concentrated position built up already is how to leverage that position without selling and creating a giant tax bill for themselves. And and the way we do that is through the use of a securities backed line of credit, right? Borrow against the shares. Pay minimal interest along the way, and then you pass away and leave that to your kids. They get a step-up in basis, and they can sell and pay off the line at that point, and it's done. Any strategies similar to that that you've used and like that help solve the same problem that we're sort of at in danger of losing?
3: Oh gosh, I hate to be like give you like a an answer of no, not really. Yeah, but not really. No, I mean, look, I mean, there are other. With the clients I work with, because they're all high net worth, ultra high net worth. When I work with clients, I focus on understanding what irks them more, estate Mm -hmm, tax mm -hmm. or income tax. And I think Mm -hmm. that's really important because you'd be surprised that there are people who are like, okay, income tax is what it is. I just don't want them to tax me again when I die, right? And then I've got the vice versa. And Because I tell people is, look, I can mitigate one type of tax. I can't mitigate both at the same time. It's pretty Mm. hard. Mm -hmm. And so in working through these strategies, and I think anyone who's working on their financial planning should think about it, which is what's the most important thing to me, mitigating my tax bill while I'm living or helping my heirs after I pass. And those are the questions I would think through because that's where it can make a difference, but it's very personal. And I'm always surprised how people feel about things. I mean, I've got clients who shrug when we talk about them having huge estate tax bills. Yep. And then I've got other clients that are like, I don't want to pay one single penny of estate tax.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's we'll probably also a function of, of age. The younger you are, the probably the less you care about estate taxes. And the older you get, the more you care about what happens to your legacy, if you will. So that.
3: Well, but here's the thing I'm going to say, right? Because when I got into the industry back in 2001, 2002, the unified credit, the amount we can pass free of tasks at our death, was mm-hmm. much lower than it is today. I mean, it was like a million dollars. So back then it captured a lot more people in the estate tax. And a lot of them took steps to mitigate the estate tax, assuming the unified credit was a million. And, you know, it had gone up slowly to three and a half million. And then Obama raised it to 5 million. And then Trump raised it to 11. We're at 11.7. So I think you're also your point about generation. The younger generations are focusing less on estate tax because it really isn't an issue for most of them. Hmm. Whereas 20 years ago, It was going to be an issue for a lot more Americans. I believe the actual statistic is today there's only 1,500 taxable estates in the United States. And -hmm. remember, most of those estates have probably done some planning to mitigate the estate tax bill. You're just not seeing that in the statistic.
2: Yeah. Fair point. Well, I tell you what, on that super high note right now, we're talking about people passing away and what's going to happen to their estates. Um well, that's super exciting. <laughs> I'm all about death and taxes. <laughs> I'm a lot of
3: fun at dinner parties.
2: <laughs> I'm gonna stop us right there because we've gotten tons and tons and tons of good information in this episode. And I'm afraid of saying anything to bring us down from this high note, but I do want to ask you a final question, which has absolutely nothing to do with equity <laughs> okay. compensation. So you can actually oh. relax for a second and take a deep breath here. But let's imagine for a moment that you never discovered your passion for taxes or equity comp or even the law, but money wasn't a factor in your decision at all. What do you think you'd be doing right now?
3: I would probably like to be a writer or be a CFO of a fashion company. (laughs) Hmm. Okay. I know very different things. And I, I will tell you, I'm also an adjunct professor. Um, as I mm-hmm. think through the question a bit more, and my leadership style is through educating. My client style is through educating. I probably would do something along the lines of being a professor and writing books. I get a lot of enjoyment out of it, and it's fun. And I would be a professor of history, I think, if, I, if anything. Probably focusing either on medieval England or uh, World War II.
2: That is wildly specific.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I was a history major in undergrad. So. Uh,
2: okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Well. On that super positive note, Eric with an A, why don't you go ahead and close us out, sir?
0: Yeah, absolutely. The only other thing I have to add is, is Megan, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, how do they reach you?
3: Yeah, no, that's a great question. So you can find me on Twitter at Megan underscore E underscore Gorman or at Forbes.com backslash Megan Gorman or at Megan at intersection.com And feel free to reach out. And if people have questions or ideas for articles, I'm always looking for things to write about for Forbes.
0: All right. Fantastic. Megan, thank you again so much for being here. Of course, Malcolm, you bring on brilliant guests. You guys had such a great conversation. I just sat back and was entertained at the same time as I learned a few things. So thank you so much for that. And of course, our last thank you goes to you the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Tech Money Podcast with Malcolm Etheridge. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Malcolm comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device this makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your colleagues. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Tech Money, our hope is that this show helped make you a little smarter about your money.
1: This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out malcolmetheridge.com slash podcast. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is malcomethridge.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge with the production, the editing and sound controls powered by Proudmouth. This has been a Malcolm on Money original. Thank you for listening.